You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We have a very special show. We're going to get to some really fun stuff about three hot defensive takes about Mike Trout, Josh Donaldson, Manny Machado. And of course, we're going to talk about who should be the next team that uses the Sergio Romo opener. But first, we do have a guest on the phone today and a previous guest on our show. We have Dr. Alan Nathan, who is a professor of physics at the University of Illinois, obviously a very well-respected uh, baseball scientific voice. And Dr. Nathan has joined us here today because everybody uh, in the baseball world knows that the home run explosion has been a big topic over the last few years. And as you probably have seen by now, MLB has released a report, uh, a very thorough and detailed scientific report on what some of the causes for the home run uh, increase may have been. And Dr. Nathan was the chairman of this committee. And he's kind enough to join us today to answer a few questions about the work that went into it. So, Dr. Nathan, first of all, uh, thank you for joining us. I, I want to get right to the first question. How did this idea come about? Like, what were your what were your expectations of what you might find, uh, and how did you, you go about putting together this committee? Uh, well, uh, there have over the last several years, there's been a number of sort of freelance kinds of analyses that have been done trying to account for the change in home runs. Uh, some of them have been done by actually by me. Uh, I got a phone call uh, last, uh, late last July, I think it was, uh, from uh, MLB. Morgan Sword was my main contact there, telling me that uh, the commissioner was interested in putting together a committee of, you know, a, quote, a blue ribbon panel uh, of mostly academics to try to study this problem. And uh, they were kind enough to ask me to chair the committee. They uh, asked me for recommendations of people to be on it. Uh, they had other people. They also uh, uh, asked for recommendations. And the, so the committee was put together uh, in, in August. We had a meeting in New York, uh, sort of an organizational meeting, with some presentations by various folks from Rawlings, from MLBAM, and others. Um, and we started our work. Uh, we worked um, uh pretty much through the fall. Our goal was to complete our work, at least the first round of the work, and to write a preliminary report by the end of 2017, which we did. It was I submitted it on December 31st. And then there was some follow-up work, and some of that follow-up work is still going on. Uh, my expectations going into it, uh, when Morgan first approached me with this idea, I said, I, I think it's a great idea. I think, you know, getting some really good people with access to whatever data is available uh, with the ability to take some of our own data and all those kinds of things is a great idea, but uh, a possible outcome and maybe even a likely outcome is that we're not going to find a smoking gun here. And uh, in a way, we have sort of found a smoking gun, but then sort of not, and, you know, so we can get into that uh, as we go further into this. Yeah. Uh, but the, the follow-up work, uh, uh, we, we uh, uh, continued work uh, into the new year, uh, and in, in many respects, it's still ongoing, but we thought the time was right to just write up what we've done, uh, even though it's somewhat of an unsatisfying result. 
uh, in terms of being able to pinpoint the exact cause um, and make it public and let the chips fall where they may while we actually continue uh, with our studies. Yeah, I want to note for our listeners, you can read the report on MLB.com, and also uh, Anthony Castrovince has written up a, a, a summary of the report as well. Uh, for, for those of us who do not have advanced physics degrees, because I've read the report, it's extremely thorough and in-depth. So I guess, Dr. Nathan, can you give us a, a, a quick overview of essentially what the findings are then? Okay, so we, we, there were three different aspects of this, or three different things that other people really prior to us had identified as possible reasons why uh, th that could account for the increase in the home runs. And we eliminated two of them, and the third one is the one. So the first one that we eliminated was that the the bounciness of the ball, the so-called coefficient of restitution of the ball, uh, had changed. So there was speculation. There were some reports by other people that, indeed, it had changed. This is normally when you talk about a juice baseball. That's what you mean. The COR has changed. Uh, and if it, if it has changed, if it's higher, that means the ball is going to be hit harder, higher exit velocity, which is going to lead to more home runs. For a variety of uh, techniques, uh, both looking at StatCast data as well as uh, our own data that we took on samplings of baseballs, we eliminated that. The COR has not changed. Or if the COR has changed, it's changed by such a small amount that it couldn't possibly account for the home run surge. Second thing that we eliminated, and this is, uh, uh, there's been a lot of people talking about this, that the reason for the increase in home runs is that batters are, are altering their approach by some combination of swinging harder, which gives you a higher exit velocity, elevating more, getting launch angles in the right range in order to give you home runs, or pulling the ball more, uh, all of which would lead to more home runs. Once again, uh, relying pretty much exclusively on StatCast data, we're able to eliminate that as being a primary cause. I mean, there might be some batters who are able to increase their home runs from that. But as a global reason for the home run surge, uh, we eliminated that. And the third, and the one that is the right answer, is that the aerodynamic properties of the ball has changed, meaning for a given launch condition, exit velocity, launch angle, and whatever else you want to include, spin, direction, um, the ball simply is carrying further. So it's out of the baddest hands altogether. It's, some, it's the aerodynamic properties of the ball. And we concluded uh, with a, I have to say, a fairly impressive set of totally consistent arguments uh, that this was the primary reason. Now, uh, uh, and, yeah, go ahead. I was saying, on this show, we've talked a lot about launch angle and sort of hypothesize that it was a big reason for more home runs. So I guess you're sort of refuting our hypothesis. I guess my question is, though, you know, if the players are noticing that the balls are traveling or carrying farther and they start to adjust their swings accordingly, maybe to try and lift the ball, wouldn't that theoretically also sort of almost like, you know, have like another like secondary increase in the home runs if like they're, they're changing their behavior once they notice that the ball is starting to carry farther? Yeah, no, it's certainly possible that that could be the case. Uh, but again, what we did was we simply looked at the data and asked, was it the case? I mean, so if you look at, in particular, if you look at the, uh, the, the three parameters that probably matter the most, exit velocity, launch angle, direction, or spray angle, 
and especially the first two of those, uh, launch angle and uh, exit velocity. And you look at the distribution of those exit velocities and launch angles, or you could, for example, you could ask the question, uh, for a given ball in play, what is the probability or, uh, that a ball will be hit in the range of exit velocities and launch angles that would lead to a home run? So we're talking about exit velocities greater than, let's say, 95 miles an hour, launch angles, say, in the 20 to 40 degree range. And you look at the, the ratio of batted balls hit in that range divided by total batted balls, so the probability of hitting the ball in that zone, the, we call it the red zone in our, in our report, that's conducive to home runs, that probability really has not changed. If you compare 2015 early and late with 2016 with 2017, it virtually hasn't changed. What has changed is that once the ball is in this red zone, the probability then it carries for a home run has gone up. And that's one of the, one of the things that led us in the direction of the aerodynamic properties of the ball. But there are other things. We also had a large collection of baseballs that we could then measure the aerodynamic properties, the drag coefficient particularly. We measured that in the lab. We could see there was a small increase, small decrease in the drag, leading then to longer fly balls. We had access to StatCast trajectory data. So StatCast allows you to do much more than is publicly available. You actually have the full trajectory of every pitch and every batted ball. We had access to that. We analyzed that. And again, we determined that for given launch conditions, the distance on a fly ball, well, we didn't really look at distance. We, we actually directly extracted the drag properties from the, from the trajectory itself, and we could see a small decrease. And then we sort of put the whole thing together with sort of a physics, partly physics, partly statistical model that said, all right, given this observed decrease in the drag coefficient, how would that affect home run production? And it agrees, you know, nearly perfectly with the actual uh, increase in home runs that we saw. So all those things seem to hand together very well. Now, as you point out, there could very well be a secondary effect. Um, we have not observed it. And, and certainly it, uh, it would be much easier if it were a global effect affecting batters across the spectrum of, of hitters from strong to weak hitters. Uh, I think we would have seen it. Uh, there might be some individual batters that uh, who have changed their approach, but as a collective thing, okay, looking globally, uh, we, we, we saw no evidence for it. Following up on that, uh, I'm kind of quoting from your report here, you looked at exit velocity in a given launch angle range. And uh, to cherry pick two of them here, you said between zero degrees and 10 degrees, which are you know, highish ground balls, low line drives, exit velocity did not increase. But between 25 and 30 degrees, which is really the sweet spot for home runs, it did increase by about 1.5 to 2 miles an hour. And I'm curious as to your thoughts as to why that is. Is that is that something to do with the change of the aerodynamic properties of the ball where exit velocity would increase at that angle? Or is that does that go back to the hitters who are trying to lift it in the air, at least those more powerful ones? Uh, I, no, it has absolutely nothing to do with the aerodynamics. It's really what I believe to be a spurious result. Uh, so one of the first things that I had done two years ago prior to this committee, I think it was three years ago, uh, no, two years ago, 
uh, I looked at I, I looked at exactly what you're saying, and I saw this to me look like an anomaly where you saw comparing the early part of 2015 to the early part of 2016, you saw an increase in exit velocities in sort of the home run range, but no increase uh, in the range, uh, like line drive range, zero degrees. Um, and that was a puzzle, and that doesn't fit into, you know, you, you could account for, you, you can't easily account for that by saying that the COR of the ball has changed. You would have expected a more uniform increase in exit velocity. Well, so we actually addressed that in our report. It's, you have to look hard to find it, but it's addressed. And it's addressed in uh, the section near the end of the StatCast analysis section, where we uh, specifically section 2.8, the anomalous 2015 data, where we had access to hit FX data. So for two seasons, 2015 and 2016, we had both HitFX and TrackMan data, which is part of StatCast. And when we looked at the HitFX data, we saw no such anomaly. In fact, we saw really no such increase in exit velocity uh, comparing uh, early 2015 with later, early 2015 with 2016. So our conclusion was that the StatCast exit velocity data for the early part of 2015 were sort of anomalous. And um, although you could argue it's not a very satisfying result, it certainly was not confirmed with the hit FX data, number one. And number two, in a way it's understandable. Uh, you could talk your way into it being understandable by saying, okay, look, this is the first half season of StatCast they're still undergoing growing pains and changes in need, made and this and that, and things then stabilize from there on. That's sort of what we said in the report, and um, we stand by that. I want to go back to uh, what you said earlier about the three approaches you took, and uh, I'm just quoting from the report here. The home run surge is not due to a bouncier, juiced ball, but to better carry, which explain, which results in longer fly ball distances. Are you concerned at all that the, uh, the layman won't really make a, a the delineation between carry and the ball not being juiced? Because it, it almost seems to me that people might kind of uh, combine those into one and the same thing. Uh, <laughs> and people have. I mean, <laughs> there are people out there who talk about the ball being juiced and they, and they mean just the combination, you know, whether it's COR or drag coefficient, they're still talking about the ball being juiced. Uh, uh, I don't like, I, I like to make the distinction. Normally when I think of the ball being juiced, I'm thinking about the COR. Uh, uh, but, 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 you know, we're dealing with rather imprecise language when you're talking about the ball being juiced. That's why we, uh, uh, I think we're largely in this report talking about the COR and the carry or the COR and the drag. Uh, and we could leave it to others to, to you know, if they want to, talk about it being juiced or not juiced that's you know that's their preference i do want to ask you about the uh, the time frame of all this so mid-season 2015 is pretty much when we started to notice all the home runs and we saw more in 2016 and even more in 2017 which broke the all-time home run record in your studies uh, did you find that there were multiple changes to the ball or was this more of a kind of linear progression uh there there was yeah, basically a linear progression, starting with 
So, again, we're we're talking about the carry of the ball, and and in particular, we're talking about the drag coefficient. Uh, There was a basically a linear uh, progression that the drag coefficient is smaller in 2017 than in 2016, and it's smaller in 2016 than it was in early 2000, uh, than late 2015, which has been smaller than it was in early 2015. We see a consistent picture there in that in that sense now of course the that the, you you know that uh, we we really believe that that's the case what we don't know is why what what physical property of the ball what you know what in the manufacturing process of the ball has led to this change that we cannot say that we know we don't know we've looked into a, a bunch of different things uh, but we have not been able to find some of them pretty simple things, such as the weight of the ball, the size of the ball, the seam height of the ball, all of which we have careful measurements of, and it's none of those, okay? But then we've looked into uh, much, much more subtle things, like the surface roughness of the ball, uh, which plays a role similar to the seams play. Uh, it you know the, when the ball is rougher it alters the drag. We, we've been able, but it's very hard to do careful measurements about that. The centering of the pill inside the ball. It does the pill is it is it right at the geometric center of the ball or is it slightly offset? If it's slightly offset, it would cause the ball to wobble a little bit as it's spinning, and that would affect the drag. Uh, we've looked into that, but it's very hard to do precise measurements. Uh, whenever anything is spun at high speed, uh, depending on how rigid it is, it'll tend to deform, and that will affect the drag. Uh, we looked into that, uh, but again, if, if there's an effect there, it's a very small and subtle effect, and the measurements thus far uh, have not been able to confirm that it, that, uh, that it really is an effect at all. But, I, but those various three things that I just mentioned are, uh, require really good instrumentation that we are in the process of actually trying to develop in our, in our still follow-up studies uh, in order to better measure. And as, as the report indicates, uh, further testing to isolate the reasons for the reduced drag are ongoing. So uh, I'm very excited to see what the follow-up says. And really, this report is incredibly thorough. Uh, we cannot do it justice in just a couple minutes with you. So I encourage everyone to go take a look at it. It's at MLB.com. Dr. Nathan, really appreciate your time and all the hard work we put into this. Um, looking forward to seeing what the reaction is from everybody. Yeah, good talking with you. Thank you. Well, our thanks to Dr. Nathan uh, for his informative answers. I mean, obviously, uh, I had about 75 more questions I wanted to ask him. But really, you should just go read the report. It's incredibly deep and thorough. Yeah, and it's certainly uh, been a uh, regular topic of discussion on this show. Um, and uh, so it was interesting to see some... Uh, I, had a, some I had a hard time with the launch angle stuff. I mean, there's so many, like, you know, we've talked about Martinez and, and Turner. But now you've got guys like Daniel Descalso is a swing changer. Daniel Robertson is a swing changer, and they're crushing the ball. Well, I guess maybe that would stand a reason why they're like the it's gone up a little bit every year. As I said, if these players are noticing it, then they're actually are starting to swing more. Yeah. Although I believe the report said that most people actually seeing it arise are like non power hitters. Then that's not having actually a big effect on home runs. Right. Well, I think there's gonna be a lot to unpack there. Let's get to some of the stuff that's happened in baseball uh, over the last week. Did you notice that Sergio Romo started two games for Tampa Bay? I feel like no one's been talking about this at all. He's, uh, an, op- he's an opener. Brian Kenny is the happiest man on the face of the earth. 
by the way. <laughs> this I love happening. random baseball. This strategy, uh, and I'm going to look this up quickly uh, while we talk. This was tried in – originally this happened – the first time I ever saw this was like in the 91 NLCS. Ted Power. There it is. I remember this. The, well, uh, I remember reading about it the other day. Yeah, against the, the Reds. Pi- the Pirates and the Reds. Red, 1990, the Reds did it against? Uh, the Pirates did it, I think, because Zane Smith came in in relief, I think was the idea. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was the first time I saw it. And this, like, you know, young – Young uh, stat nerd Matt Myers is like, oh, this is yeah. fascinating. Why don't teams do this every day? Someone, uh, there's been people have been talking about, oh, Brian Kenny wrote about it in his book, and uh, somebody else blogged about it like five years ago. And then someone tweeted at me, and I can't remember the name. Someone wrote about it in a book in like 1964 <laughs> that this was a thing people should try. We saw the shift in the late 40s. No idea is a new idea, I guess is the takeaway here. <laughs> yeah, so the idea is obviously Sergio Romo started the game for the Rays. Two back, games. Two, 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 uh, Saturday and Sunday against the Angels. Uh, he whiffed six of nine hitters he faced in two and a third innings. Um, the first game... Uh, What's Yarborough's first name? Ryan. Ryan, Ryan Yarborough. <laughs> and then and the Matt Andresi in the second game. Um, now, in the past, most of the reasons people talked about doing this was mostly if they thought a team had like a specific right-handed or left-handed lineup up. It was like, okay, we'll, we'll bring in our righty. They'll start their lefty lineup, and then we'll, then we'll bring in a lefty afterwards. But that really wasn't exactly what the Rays were getting at. No. I mean, I think people have been thinking about this all wrong in terms of, you know, it's not really about Sergio Romo. Like, it is. He's got a lot of his platoon splits. Um, there's a million guys like Sergio Romo out there. It's not hard to find a Sergio Romo. I really think this was targeted towards the Angels, and I think that there's very few teams this would work against. But if you if you look at the reasons why this worked, obviously Sergio Romo huge platoon splits, right? Since the start of 2017, uh, 263 on base to righties, 372 to lefties. It's persisted across his entire career. The Angels have no good hit lefty hitters. They are the second weakest lefty hitting team in baseball. That includes Shohei Otani. And then when he's not available, which he wasn't because he was pitching, uh, they are they are it's grim, right? Because a lot of teams could adapt to this. If you did it to the Cubs, great. They'll put Anthony Rizzo or Kyle Schwarber hitting second, or Ben Zobers as a switch hitter. What were the Angels going to do? Were they going to pull up Kyle, uh, Cole Calhoun, who's hitting legitimately 160, 197, 201? Were you going to get him more at bats than Mike Trout or just? If so, that's a win for the uh, the Rays in and of itself, right there. They they were unable to react. They had to have their their top four or five guys being righty. 97% of their plate appearances this year in the top four spots have come from righties. So I really think of all teams, the Angels are the most vulnerable to this, to the point where I think they absolutely have to go trade for a lefty right now because this should happen to them pretty much every single night. Yeah, and uh, the, 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 the secondary benefit, which I think is why more teams should try it with their fourth and fifth starters, is that it basically means that you're, you're – let's say, you know – you. A, a middling starter, your Ryan Yarbrough's, your Matt Andresi, they're coming in and they're not, they don't have to start the game facing the top of the lineup. And part of the reason people always feel like more runs are scored in the first inning than any other inning. Why is that? Because your best hitters are up automatically in the first. It's the only inning where you can control exactly which hitters come up. That's why the most runs are scored in the first inning. So it makes sense that you can then take your number five starter, who's not that great of a pitcher, and say, you know what, you actually get to start with the number five hitter in the order or the four hitter, which is usually a good hitter, but it means that like in the second inning, you're getting the bottom of the order. And if you're trying to turn the lineup over over twice or even three times, you're not being asked to hit the top of the order when you're at your most tired. Exactly right. That third time through the order, now you're not facing Trout. Now you're facing Martin Maldonado and Cole Calhoun or whomever it might be. Uh, and then also, you know, the Rays of all teams are in like a really unique situation. You'd never do this with the Astros. No one's going to tell Justin Verlander you're coming in in the third inning. The Rays rotation right now, because Jacob Freya just got hurt, is Chris Archer, Blake Snell, 
and I'm in here doing a shrug emoji right now. I think Anthony Banda might be third because everyone's hurt. Honeywell's hurt. De Leon's hurt. Evaldi's hurt. Chirino's hurt. Faria's hurt. He went on the deal today. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they do not have a five-man rotation. They they barely have a three-man rotation. So a lot of this is semantics. Like they've been doing the the bullpen game. Um, they just do not have guys who are going to go deeply into the game. So if you can pick these relievers and say, we're going to make you into the best possible version of yourself, because obviously there's not going to be a pinch hitter in the first inning. It's just not going to happen. And we can make sure Sergio Remo is never going to face a lefty and then improve our quote-unquote starter who's coming in a relief for the reasons you just talked about. I think the benefit here is obvious. Like You're not going to see this every night, every game. It's there's not that's never going to be the case and it never should be the case but in the right situations like for the right teams and against the right teams um i would be surprised if we didn't see it again i'd be shocked we didn't see it this weekend the orioles are an incredibly vulnerable team it is the orioles are facing the rays uh the orioles have uh, almost no valuable lefty hitters right now because chris davis is off to a terrible start all their good hitters are righties why wouldn't you do the same thing against Baltimore this weekend? I demand it. They must. Yeah, I mean, and certainly the, the Rays have already said they're going to, I've already shown a willingness to do it. So why not do it again? <laughs> they, they should. Um, you know, if you look at, like I said, there's no shortage of these guys. I, I took a crack at trying to find Romo esque pitchers. So I looked at righties, uh, who are not closers, like, you know, Kenley Jansen is not going to be starting a game. These non elite. Uh, righty relievers who have had elite right-handed splits. So I looked at a weighted on base below 290. Uh, the average for righty on righty in relief is like 305. And I'm not going to go through the whole list of names, but if you think of Sergio Romo doing this, why couldn't our friend Peter Moylan do this? Like, isn't that perfect that you put Peter Moylan in that kind of spot? Or Steve Ciszek from the Cubs. Uh, Jose Leclerc, Ryan Presley, I think would be great uh, for the Twins. There's a guy, there's like 20 guys in this list. The point is not that it's hard to find these guys. They just have to be deployed appropriately. And then most importantly, they have to be on board. Like, I think the most interesting thing that came out of this for me was uh, they asked Sergio Romo about this after the game. And he's like, you know, I'd never been on a mound before where the mound was pristine, <laughs> where there wasn't a divot from like eight innings of guys pitching. And I'm like, OK, I legitimately had never thought of that. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, but he was on board. And that's a big part and of it. The, the one point you made at the, the, uh, the top of the segment was basically saying a lot of it had to do more with the opponent than the pitcher. And one team you pointed out as a good target for this is the Astros. Um, they're top four. Um, with Correa, Altuve, Springer, Bregman. I mean, those are all really good right-hand hitters. And to me, I started to think ahead to October, and I started to think ahead to them playing the Yankees. And, you know, Aaron Boone was quoted as sort of saying, like, oh, I wouldn't do this. But this is like the perfect situation. The Yankees have one dominant starter and then a bunch of, you know, like – the rotation. So basically, in a non-Severino game, if the Yankees are playing the Astros, the ALCS, and you list a couple candidates here, Chad Green, David Robertson, like they're like the perfect candidates to do this. They are. Now, I will say, unlike the Angels and the Orioles, they do at least have Josh Reddick, who is a capable left-handed hitter. Although, if you wanted to do it right now, Josh Reddick went on the DL today. Yeah. So over the next 10 days would be a really good time to try this out. Uh, it is a little different, I think, because those are four good hitters. So it's not like you make them bad hitters. You just make them slightly less effective hitters, but that's still a benefit. It also, But the other thing is it also maxim, in certain ways it maximizes the leverage of maybe your third best reliever. Where instead of saying like, you know, like I'm going to hold you for some situation that might never arise, like the first inning is relatively high leverage when you factor in that like the game is usually tied and the t you know the top of the lineup is coming up. Like so if, when you add in that, you know, Trust me, I actually don't think the Yankees will do this. No, they, they will not do this. They aren't an analytically, analytically inclined team, but I think it's the Rays being the Rays, sort of like, and they have that reputation for being able to do this sort of stuff, um, is uh, kind of what makes it interesting. And we actually had a, a number of our reporters uh, the other day go around the league and ask players for um, 
some reaction to this. Um, and the one that the most amusing one was Kenley Jansen. Uh, I, I could not believe he who said, said that sure won't fly in the playoffs. And it was almost like, were you watching the World Series last year? <laughs> you know year? what ga- happened in Game 7, right? Like, the playoffs is the time this would always fly. Like, pretty much any time you don't have a Justin Verlander or a Chris Sale on the mound, any time you should do this. And in Game 7, well, they didn't do this intentionally. You know, the, the Astros against the Dodgers right. took Lance McCullough was out in the third inning, top of the fourth. Uh, he made it through three. I remember I wrote about this. He made it through three and a third with a shutout going, uh, but he'd hit four guys. And so they were basically like, I know you've got a shutout going, but you don't look good. We're going to get you out. And then Charlie Morton came in and the rest is history. Um, my favorite of all these, by the way, the Kenley Jansen one is hilarious. I think Alex Wilson, reliever for the Tigers, he really nailed it right on the head. Uh, to set this up a little bit, Zach Kozart, an infielder for the Angels, well, was extremely unhappy about this. He basically said, it's not good for baseball. I don't like it. Uh, paraphrasing here. Uh, but the whole point there is that you, if you get in his head, if you get the other hitter thinking about it, if you're screwing with him, that is worth it to me. That's entirely worth it. Alex Wilson of the Tigers said, you listen to commentary from Cozart and these guys, and they said it felt like spring training, which they're obviously not very comfortable or happy about. So in theory, it worked. We're not here to make friends. Yes, I love that. That is fantastic. Yeah, and then not surprisingly, uh, Adam Adovino, um, an analytically inclined player we've spoken about a lot on the podcast, and I believe was once a guest on the podcast. Yes, he was. Um, had a very smart answer. He basically, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this, he said they're trying something out of the box, and they don't have the Astros rotation. It's good for them to go for it. Um, and they're not doing it when they're pitching Chris Archer or when they're pitching Blake Snell. They're doing it with Ryan Yarbrough, who's, who's a rookie, basically, and Matt Andresi. The other part of it is it's the first inning when the most runs are scored. There are probably a lot of reasons for that. Starters tend to, and as I and I did this as a starter, try to ease into the game. A reliever doesn't do that. Good for them. They're trying something. They don't give a damn what anybody yeah. else thinks. They're trying to win games. I also who who wrote this? Where can people find this when it comes out? This article with the quotes in it. Uh, uh, Daniel Kramer compiled it. Great. Good for Daniel Kramer. This quote from Brian Dozier, I think, is fantastic because he's in favor of it. Right? He says, uh, "I was just talking with some of the guys who come from Tampa Bay. They rave about their analytic department and pitching staff. So obviously, they know what they're doing. It's a cool thing to see." This is the same Brian Dozier who almost passed out when someone tried to break up a no-hitter with a bunt. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm fascinated to see that this is his reply here. He's a complicated, he's a complicated <laughs> he guy. Uh, so anyway, you know, I think we're both in favor of this because it's smart and interesting and cool. It's not going to be an every night kind of thing. It can't be. It's got to be deployed appropriately and especially in the playoffs, regardless of what Kenley Jansen <laughs> thinks. Uh, we're going to finish off our show today with three hot defensive takes. We're going to talk about defense. Three big names, Mike Trout. Manny Machado, Josh Donaldson. Did you know that Mike Trout is good at baseball? And what I've there are many things I find interesting about Mike Trout. Bill James tweeted today, by the way, Mike Trout has never once had a sacrifice bunt, which makes me like Mike Trout even more. Yeah, I don't I think, know if it's I think, true. I think the tweet was he's never had a successful sacrifice bunt. So it means he's never it doesn't mean he's never tried. Well, uh, whatever. It, that, that's fine. That's even better. Maybe he failed at it. Um, what I've always liked about Mike Trout is when he's had holes, he's improved them. Uh, you know, he had trouble hitting the high fastball a few years ago. He fixed it. There was talk that he didn't have a very good throwing arm. Well, it seemed like he got better. The last couple of years, defensive metrics did not actually like Mike Trout all that much. In 2016, he was minus two in outs above average. Last year, also minus two outs above average. This year so far, plus four in outs above average, which is cool. If you look at 92 outfielders who've had at least 50 opportunities this year, uh, the highest catch percentage, which is exactly what it sounds like, of the balls hit to them, how many did they catch? Draw Dyson number one, 97%. Mike Trout is tied with Harrison Bader, for second at 96%, ahead of Byron Buxton, Adam Duvall, and Adubal Herrera. I mean, these are all really good names. 
And I, I think it's so cool that Mike Trout basically can say he wants to get better uh, and, and improve. And he did literally say he wanted to get better. There was a great interview where he talked to Brian Kenny and MLB Network this spring uh, about exactly what he was trying to do. And we're going to listen to that for a second now. Carlos and I have been having conversations about like using whether it's technology or scouting to improve upon. You said working on the first step mm -hmm. defensively. Tell it like wh how do, what do you do? My preset when I when I go, I'm already down before the, when the pitch is already like when the pitcher still has a hand. So I want to I'm trying to get down as soon as that as soon as contact happens so I can make that first yeah. job opposed to sitting there for like a half second flat footed. So it just helped me because even on like the foul balls, I'm, you know, as soon as the ball goes through the zone, I'm down to foul balls, I'm just reacting. And opposed to when the pitch is still, you know, and the, the ball's still in the pitcher's hand, I'm just sitting there like this. And then when the pitch is thrown, I'm, I'm just a little late. So just this little stuff you, I'm working on. So if you're Mike Trout, you can just say, here's the thing I need to get better at, and then just go out and do it. That's, that's that's unfair. That's how I operate. I don't know about you, Mike. <laughs> it's unfair. Um, but you know, he's also separately talked about being aggressive. And I, I looked last year at a lot of these plays when I wrote about it. There were a couple of plays where he just—I don't want to say he didn't try hard, but he could have gone all out and gotten to the ball. And he's already had a couple of plays this year that were more difficult catch probability plays than he had all of last year. So Mike Trout having his best offensive year, and I don't want to say his best defensive year, but best of the last several years because Mike Trout is a baseball god and can do pretty much whatever he wants. Now, I do think this is interesting uh, when we move to talk about Manny Machado. Manny Machado having a fantastic offensive season. I think Machado and Trout are both, uh, I want to say, top five in weighted runs created plus, I think. Either way, they're both fantastic. But he's moved this year from third base to shortstop, and I found something fascinating. We looked at uh, sprint speed. And he's not getting faster. He's actually kind of going the opposite direction. So uh, league average here is always 27 feet per second. In 2015, he was 27 and a half feet per second. That's the 66th percentile. Sounds right. Above average. He was never Billy Hamilton. Uh, 2016, that went down to 26.1. Stayed constant uh, last year. This year, it's down to 25.6 feet per second. That's the 24th percentile. He is the 35th fastest of 35 shortstops. That's the slowest with 25 competitive runs. Uh, which is interesting, and now you know being compared to faster players at shortstop than he was at third. We don't really have great stack cast metrics for infield defense yet, but if you look at, for example, defensive run saved, he's down from plus six to minus six. UZR is down from plus two to minus three. It sort of feels to me like he was a better fit at third base than he was at shortstop, and since we all know he's going to get traded, I do wonder if some team will say, we really need you to play third base, and if he'll do that. Yeah, it's interesting because he sort of moved back. Part of the reason he moved back to shortstop was almost like, I mean, not that the, the Orioles are trying to market him per se, but it seemed like he had a willingness to move back to shortstop, thinking that this would sort of enhance his his value as a free agent. Obviously, you know, shortstops who can hit forty home runs are harder to find than third basemen who can hit forty sure. home runs. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's actually. I don't think in a weird way. Actually, I don't think this is going to affect his long term value that much. I think it's, if teams sort of just say like, okay, well, this is who he is. He's a third baseman. Let's just put him back there and let him just rake. You know, in the grand scheme of things. How much is this really... If he's willing. If, if he insists on playing shortstop, then that's going to limit some of the places. True. Um, I think it seems like there's a good chance he'll end up getting traded and he'll end up you know, playing... I guess if he gets traded to the Cubs, which is, which is a big rumor, he wouldn't play third, obviously. No, he'd, he'd play shortstop. Yeah. I mean, he'd probably play shortstop if he got traded to the Dodgers. He would probably play shortstop if he got traded to the Rockies, which he won't, but we both want him to. Uh, he would probably play shortstop if he got traded to the Diamondbacks, who desperately need an infielder. The Milwaukee as well. RC has been terrible. Shaw's been really good. There's probably, I, I guess I would say this, uh, contrary to what I just said, there are more places that would play him as a shortstop than as a third baseman. I think there's there's more holes, and if you're like Atlanta, you might just go get Mike Moustakas instead of uh, instead of Manny Machado because the price is going to be so much cheaper. 
I guess that's true. Uh, interestingly, though, <laughs> he's a full win behind Mike Trout in terms of Fangraph's wins above replacement, despite having a very similar offensive season just because of the defensive numbers. I do wonder huh. if this will cost him come uh, postseason time. Speaking of infield superstars who are possibly likely to get traded or at least going to be free agents this offseason, Josh Donaldson. If you remember Josh Donaldson early in the year, bounced some throws from third base, uh, shoulder did not look right, went on the disabled list. Well, we looked this up uh, because now at Baseball Savant, as of a couple weeks ago, we have all of this positioning data public. You can see how deep anybody's playing in various situations, how far from the line. And when we looked at Josh Donaldson, I thought this was really interesting, and it tells you a lot about the state of his arm. In 2016, he played 114 feet deep from home plate on average. Uh, that was tied for eighth deepest of 67 third basemen. All of these will be minimum 500 plate appearances. So he was eighth deepest of 67 in 2016. Last year, he dropped in from 114 to 111 feet deep. Now he's the 25th shallowest of 70. This year, he's dropped in from 111 to 108 feet deep. He is tied for the shallowest of 39 qualified third basemen with Danny Valencia. That is three feet each year, and we know there's something going on with his shoulder. That is, uh, that's somewhat worrisome. I mean, if you're gonna, if you want to trade for him and want to play third base, you got to be concerned about this. I'm less concerned about trading for him for three months and taking my chances than I am uh, signing him if I'm a team next offseason. His free agency is going to be the most fascinating because he's, he's what 32, something like that, 33 maybe. Um, and obviously, I mean, he's, he still can hit. He looks like oh, he crushes. He can hit. He, he looks like Josh Donaldson at the plate, but does not look like the old Josh Donaldson in the field. I mean, you factor in his age and the way some of teams have sort of been, you know, been obviously been pretty patient when it comes to players who aren't like in the peak of the market. Not to mention the fact that there's a lot of good third basemen in the game right now. And Manny Machado might be out there marketing himself as a third baseman. It'll be interesting to see how this pans out. I almost wonder if, in terms of uh, talking about his free agency, if we're getting ahead of ourselves, because you may or may not know that the Blue Jays have a third base prospect who is lighting up the minor leagues, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who everybody wants to see up. Uh, I think part of the reason he hasn't been called up is because he's, what, 19 still? He's, he's not, not just 19. He, like, just, he just turned 19. 19. I think... I think he was born in 1999, people. I don't want to talk about that. That's terrifying. Uh, I think nobody really loves his defense that much. Like, I don't know that he's going to stick at third base long term. But also, you know, what do you do with Josh Donaldson? Do you make him? I know Kendris Morales has been terrible, but he his hard hit rate is actually still elite. He's hitting him into the ground, so that's fair. But I think that's why they don't want to get rid of him. Obviously, they still have Justin Smoke who plays first base. You know, if you were to call up Guerrero right now, where do you put Donaldson or do you cut loose one of the other guys? I think it's not as cl as clear cut as people make it seem, but I also don't think Donaldson is the third baseman here for very much longer. No, it doesn't seem that way. Uh, so that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We'll catch you next time. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazon's 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 